Scripture reading this evening is from Philippians. We've made it to chapter 2. So Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is the word of God. For those of you who are, are joining us, we, we've been on a journey through the book of Philippians. And for those of you who've read it or have some familiarity with it, you know the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi around 60, 61, 62 AD, likely from a prison cell in Rome. And it's, it's a unique epistle, a unique letter, because it's one that's written to a church that's actually doing pretty well. Whereas some of the other letters have more of a rebuke, this is one of great encouragement for a a church that was full of joy. And one of the challenges for us as we interpret this letter is the original letter was written in something called Koine Greek, which was sort of the street language of the time. And so one of the challenges that interpreters face is when they translate the Bible from this language to our modern English is some words just don't transfer over very well. It's, It's a very different way of thinking about language. And so we have all kinds of translations. Um, we may have, we have the NIV, which is what I read from. The NIV is what we'd call a paraphrase translation, meaning it's not trying to go word for word from the original Greek. Rather, it's trying to communicate the meaning in a way that we might understand it better. You may be familiar with other translations like the ESV or maybe NASB are both um, more attempting to go a little bit more word for word when they translate the Bible. Um, But I want to do something for us this evening that I think will help us sort of get the the different nuance of the original Greek. So if you have your Bible with you, if not, that's totally fine. Uh, You have permission to pull out your phone, pull out the Bible app. And I want you to pick any translation you want. It's your choice. You can scroll down um, and, and pick any. It could be King James. It can be the message, whatever it is. And I'm going to read a translation that is likely not in your Um, Bible app. It's actually a translation done by a guy named N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar. And he recently translated the New Testament to try to capture the essence of how someone in the first century would have understood these words. So I'm going to read my translation. And as I read it, I want you to read whatever translation you have pulled in front of you. And so you can see some of the differences and maybe capture this a little bit. So here we go. So if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit, if your hearts are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another, and here's how you do it. Hold on to that same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everyone else as your superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. Okay, so likely 
It was different than the one you were reading. Um, it has a little bit of different flavor to it. I'm going to read one more. This is Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation. So I'm going to read this translation. And, and again, I want you to sort of see how maybe it's a little bit differently interpreted. Here we go. If you've gotten anything out of following Christ, if his love has made difference in your life, if being in community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. I hope this exercise was, was helpful, at least to sort of see some of the differences. Um, again, some of these, for example, that, that the message translation is not meant to be word for word by any means. It takes it a step further. It takes a paraphrase, and then it takes it into more of a modern vernacular. So you're sort of getting a paraphrase of a paraphrase in a sense. But it can still capture sort of the essence of what Paul is trying to communicate. And what all modern translations mask is the fact that um, this letter was actually, this specific section was one long run-on sentence. Okay, you won't find this in any of your translations. But in the Greek, um, because papyrus was really expensive, and at the time um, they wanted to fit as much as they could in, in what we have of the manuscripts, they took away a lot of the punctuation. Okay, so it literally is 82 words in a row, one super long run-on sentence. And to that end, with no commas, no periods, no semicolons, all of that, um, it's a real challenge to sort of get underneath what Paul is trying to communicate to this church because it is sort of a, a really dense, packed-in section. But there's a clue to the meaning because there is one verb in this passage that is super important to understanding it. It's in the dead center of the passage. In verse 2, Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Make my joy complete. The one verb and command in all the long, complex, run-on sentence, it's this word for joy, kara. Okay? As you know, Paul uses this word kara 16 times in the book of Philippians. Um, it's sort of this undercurrent. It's a theme. This word kara means joy. It also means rejoice. One of them is the noun form. The other one is the verb form. And so when he says, make my joy complete, what that kind of translates to is fill my joy to the point of overflowing. So Paul's already like, look, I've got so much joy in my heart. I'm rejoicing even though I'm in prison, right? And this isn't a cushy modern day prison. This is a brutal Roman prison. And even in the midst of that, I am full with joy, and I'm still getting more joy that it's overflowing, okay? That's the word picture that we get when Paul describes this. And so in chapter 1, verse 4, if you remember from a few weeks ago, um, he says, in all my prayers, I pray for you with joy because of the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And chapter 118, he says, uh, I will rejoice, which is that same word, kara in the Greek. And he says the word, I will rejoice even in the midst of trial, Okay, and then in verse 19, rejoice, you get it over and over and over again. He's using these words, rejoice, enjoy, I will continue to rejoice. And he says, I'm already filled with joy now, but do me a favor, fill my cup to overflowing. Now that one verb, 
that one sentence is sort of the center of gravity for this text. It's sort of what anchors it. And so what, what I want to do is talk a little bit about why. Why does that matter? And for the thinkers um, in this room who like to ask the question, why? Um, this is my son, Pierce, right now. He always asks me, why, Daddy, why are you going to work? And I have to explain so I can put food on the table. And he's like, but there's food in the fridge. And I'm like, we might run out of that food, you know, and I have to make sure we have more food. Um, but he's always asking me the question, why? And maybe that is the question you ask often. And so he asks the question, why? And then he shifts gears and he asks the question, how? Okay, this is for you pragmatists, those who, who like... Um, to understand the practical application, the nuts and the bolts. And so we're going to look at each one of these and, and kind of unpack what Paul is doing. So Paul in verse 1 says this. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with the king now, okay, in the Greek, this is a rhetorical question, meaning um, when we look at the word um, for united, um, or sorry, if you have any encouragement in being united, um, that word can be translated since or because, okay, which kind of helps us understand where he's leading us in that. So fill my joy to overflow. Why? Why is he asking that? Why does that matter? Well, he tells us, for starters, have encouragement with being united with the king. And that word encouragement, it's kind of a complicated word. It, it actually um, can be translated into being more like a teacher and a student, or a tutor and a pupil is kind of like the idea. Um, it's a synonym for teaching. And so the way I was trying to think of, like, how do I, what's a, what's a metaphor for this? I was thinking of um, my son Pierce is currently in something called First Tee, which is like golf camp for kids. And they sent us an email that said you're not supposed to watch your kids. You're supposed to drop them off and drive away. They don't want to be watched. But I'm, I'm that dad who was, like, you know, just pulled over to the side to watch them train. And my son has the hardest time when I take him golfing. He doesn't believe me when I tell him what to do, even though I could help him be a better golfer. And I think it's because every time I come home from a golfing with people, he asks me if I won, and I always have to tell him no because I rarely win. So he probably doesn't trust my, uh, my skills anyway. But I try to tell him things like keep your eye on the ball, keep your left arm straight, like focus, you know, to make sure that when you swing, you keep your eye on the ball the entire way. And he's like, he just won't listen to my instruction. But I'm watching these instructors, and they're whispering over his shoulder these things, all the things that I tell them. And of course, he's listening to them, and his swing's getting better every day because these other people are instructing him and encouraging him. And I was just sort of thinking, like, how do we think about, what does it mean and when we talk about this, this sort of encouragement for being united with the king, I would imagine, in a sense, this encouragement, this teaching, okay, that's what the word in the Greek kind of means. It's as if Jesus is looking over our shoulder. He's giving us instruction in his word. He's encouraging us every step of the way, not, not looking over our shoulder to, to constantly condemn us, but rather he's encouraging us along the way. There is joy in being united and encouraged in the king, the next line is what? There is comfort in love. I think of love, uh, the love of the Father. There's a parallel there. I think about the comfort I, I, I know I get, but also my daughter gets, Emma. She's a year and a half when I take her and I put her on my shoulder and she kind of nestles into me and I rock her to sleep. There is, a, there is a comfort that she has being held by her Father. Right? So you have the comfort of love. You have the encouragement or teaching from the king. 
And then lastly, Paul says, if any common sharing in the Spirit, okay? This phrase um, is from the Greek word koinonia, which we talked about a few weeks ago. It's this idea of partnership. And it's all generated by God's work in you. And that's, that's what, look, you look at this. You've got uh, encouragement from the king. You've got comfort and love. You've got partnership or koinonia in the Spirit. And on the surface, that's what this text means. But you've got to remember, when Paul writes... Um, he's, he's not so black and white as we often are. There's usually something underneath the surface. There's a wink and a nod um, to the, 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 the threefold nature of God. Gordon Fee, um, he's a theologian and writer, he says, this clause very likely reflects an intentional Trinitarian subculture. No idea what that means, but it sounds really smart. Um, essentially, what he's saying by that Okay, so this Trinitarian subculture is that um, when Paul talks about being encouragement and united with who? The king. Who's he referring to? He's referring to Jesus, the son. When he talks about love, we think Paul means the love of God and the Father. And when he talks about koinonia with the spirit, it's not lowercase spirit, it's uppercase. It's the Holy Spirit. And so we have son, father, spirit. And you know, you may be surprised to know that the word Trinity is not actually in our Bible. But if you go through cover to cover, Old Testament to New Testament, there are fingerprints and evidence for the fact that this idea of God existing in the Trinity, three and one, it's a, it's a really beautiful picture. And the problem with that word, Trinity, is that our Western minds, are, are, we tend to go right to systematic theology. Very, it's very black and white. We kind of come with metaphors, like an egg, right? It's the yolk and the, what's the gooey stuff? The white stuff. The white, whatever you call it. You got the shell, right? But it's all an egg, right? And it's not a perfect metaphor. It's, it falls way short. Some may even say it's heresy, right? There's, there's water, which is vapor and ice and water. <laughs> but it's all water, right? Liquid, that's what I was going for, liquid. Um, you have a three-in-one shampoo. Have you heard that one? It's like, it cleans your hair, it conditions your hair, and it keeps dandruff away, right? Three-in-one. None of these metaphors really work. They fall short. But Paul, he's not thinking like we are. He's not thinking black and white. He's thinking in color. He doesn't think in a sort of either-or paradigm. He thinks in a both-and we think in charts and graphs. Paul is thinking in story. To Paul, there's one creator, a God who made the universe, who spoke every atom into existence, who created the cosmos, who at the exact time, God the Father, right? God is Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus in the, in the flesh and blood on earth. And God is the spirit who is at work all around us. And a few hundred years after Paul, there was this uh, theologian by the name of John of Damascus, okay? And he coined a term, perichoresis. I'm not really sure if that's how you say it, but if you say it with authority, people believe you. Um, but it's, it's this idea, um, peri is, is the word for, for um, movement, okay? And I'm going to get this wrong. Yes, um, it's this idea, corsus is actually the word for, for uh, movement, and peri is the word for around, okay? So it's this idea, moving around. And it, what happens is theologians took that word and took that understanding to mean 
that there is this divine dance between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that all creation is actually invited to step into this divine dance. Now, what does that have to do with this command? Fill up my joy to overflowing by being like-minded. I believe it has a lot to do with it. Why should I fill up my joy to be like-minded? Why? Well, Paul says here's why. Because the creator of the universe exists in an eternal, self-sustaining, unending, divine dance of joyful, self-giving love and oneness. The relationship between God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has existed before time existed itself. In community. And when Jesus says that you're basically invited to step into this divine dance, what it means is that you're being swallowed up by this Trinitarian God. There's encouragement in God and Jesus, comfort in the love of God, koinonia in the spirit of God, and you are drenched in it. You're invited to swim, copy, and emulate this divine dance. It's the, the joyful, self-giving, never-ending love of God. So to Paul, that's the why. Right? It's layer. There's layers to what he's trying to say. Now, he shifts and he talks about the how. Okay? These are for the pragmatists in the room. If you like to make lists, my wife likes to make me lists. She puts them in our reminders on my phone. We have one for Costco, Dylan's, Aldi, Whole Foods, and I have to get everything on her list. And it's a weekly thing. Right? For those of you who like lists, I don't like lists, but we have lots of lists. Paul says this. Okay, fill up my joy to overflowing by being, how? So how do we do that? He says, by being like-minded. Um, that, that can be translated to think alike. Okay, so his point is not all of you need to think the exact same way about every single issue or have all the same dogma or think um, that, that, you know, it's not that there can't be diversity of thought among you, but the main thing is the main thing. You have the same end focus, right? You major on the majors and minor on the minors. So we're, we're a church. We're not a cult. So we're not forcing people to all believe all the exact same things because there is a lot of mystery in how we understand God. But our central focus, Paul contends, has to be the same. And then he lays out seven examples. Here's his list, okay? what it looks like in the day-to-day. The first one on the list, Paul says, is having the same love, right? Love is always the first one on the list for Paul. He does this quite a bit. He says, having the same love, being one in spirit. And in the Greek, um, that is is like a feeling on the same page, focused on the one thing, having that, that sort of centralized goal in mind. And then he goes on to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition." That phrase, interestingly enough, selfish ambition, um, outside of the New Testament, you're not going to find it in any other Greek literature prior to that, okay? In fact, the first time you'll actually see that, that term, if you go all the way back, is from Aristotle's Politico, okay? So if any philosopher majors maybe have read that, but it's not likely. Um, and essentially, in this, this work, it's, it talks about what are the causes for war? Why do people go to war? And they, he makes the case that one of the causes is selfish ambition of politicians. Those who are in power, who are political, have selfish ambitions. 
that oftentimes bring countries to war. Now, truth is, nothing much has changed in 4,000 years. I think that could still be true today. If you look at um, the selfish ambitions of politicians who are power-hungry, who lie, who cheat, who steal to get ahead, who rig elections, who um, put out propaganda to deceive people, um, one of the many causes, right, and we see this, is, is this idea that they want to be central and the center of attention and on stage with lights and a microphone, kind of like me right now. But like the, the, the idea behind it is there is a selfish ambition that is going to cost others negatively. Now, I think it's not just politicians, okay? I think all of us, in some ways, have this creep into our own life. There's something in us as humans that we want to get ahead of others. We want to move up the ladder. I, I don't know about you, but have you ever heard good news about someone, maybe a friend or a sibling or whatever? You heard good news. Maybe they got a promotion or a raise, or maybe they had something really good happen to them, and inside you, they're, they're, you're happy for them, but there's also a little tinge of envy or maybe a little bit of jealousy. Have you ever felt that? I think that's a little bit of what happens when selfish ambition can creep into our heart. There's something in us as humans we want to get ahead. And then he goes on to say this other phrase, vain conceit. Vain can be translated as empty. Um, So it's this idea that you have nothing to brag about. Um, I know I use a lot of examples about my kids, but that's like my life right now. So uh, another Pierce story I remember picking him up from school. It's like the last month of school. And he was, I saw him run to me. He was so excited. And he said, Dad, Dad, look, look at this. And he opens his backpack and he pulls out this banner that says student of the month. And I was like, proud dad. Like so pumped for him. I was like, yeah, I did that. It really was him who did it. Um, and it was, a, it was like the last month of school. So it was a really big deal, but also like really clutch to get in the last month of school. Um, and he said, Dad, this is the, there's only 12 students or however many who get this award, and he was so proud. But then the moment was kind of ruined because there was his friend right here and his friend's dad, and he, he goes to his friend, he goes, look, I got student of the month, but they only give out 12, and you didn't get one. Sorry. And I was like, no, it was going so good. And the dad luckily handled it like a champ. It was like, oh, good job, dude. But you could tell the other kid was destroyed. And so I had to pull Pierce aside and have like a you know, father-son moment. I was like, hey, dude, that's so cool. I'm so proud of you. But like, we don't want to brag about it. You know, we don't want to um, boast about our accomplishments. We had a really, really good discussion. Um, but look, as humans, this, this is in all of us, right? We want other people to see our accomplishments. We want people to see us, whether it's on... Instagram, we're posting about the highlights of our life or whether on LinkedIn, right, you see a little notification, someone got a, a new job or promotion or, or whatever it might be. We want other people to see us in a certain way. We want others to think we're more important than maybe we actually are. You know, when you ask someone how they're doing, um, 90% of the time they'll say things like, well, I'm doing good or life is is." is fine and things are well. Rarely are we honest if things aren't going well. Um, One of the phrases that we often use is that we're busy. This is one I use all the time. I'll say, oh, things are great, really busy. And my life is just so busy. 
And I think as in a modern American, like, busy is almost like a pseudonym for important, right? It's like, it's like, yeah, I'm in seminary, I've got three kids, my life is so busy, but look at all my accomplishments, and I'm carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. It's kind of like a false humility, right? And I have to, like, do a real investigation into my own motive sometimes when I say things like that, because I think oftentimes we project a false sense of humility to others when we say things like that. Paul says this, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's a waste of energy. Stop. But rather, it says in humility, and more on that word in a second, in humility, Value others above yourself. Okay, now don't misunderstand Paul here. What Paul is not saying is that humility is some sort of self-deprecating, thinking poorly about yourself and thinking others are better than you. Okay, that's, that's not what he's trying to communicate. What Paul is saying um, is to put others' needs before your own. It's not think badly about yourself. It's see that person and consider them first. C.S. Lewis writes in in Mere Christianity, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Putting others' needs first. I know from my own experience, I'm not always great at that. But this is what Paul is calling us to. Whether that's putting your spouse's need in front of your own, for those who are married, which can be a challenge. I know tonight... um, Thursdays are my marathon day, so I got here at, at like 7.30, and I probably won't go home until 8.30, and she's been with her kids all day, and I know what she needs. She needs me to have an adult conversation, right? Because she's been talking to toddlers all day who need her for all kinds of things. And what I want to do is go home, veg out on the couch, and I've been really into these survival reality TV shows, you know, where they go into the woods and try to survive with like a lighter and a blade, Right, that's what I want to do. I don't want to think. I just want to watch my show and not think about anything. But I know, like, like i got to practice what I preach tonight. So I, you can ask Betsy tomorrow to make sure I talk to her because she needs that. But, like, I know I need to go home and have an adult conversation. Like, that's me attempting to say, here's what I want. I see someone who has something. I'm going to make that the priority. Okay? So think about that in your own life. Whether you're married or not married. Maybe, maybe you have kids. Maybe it's your parents. You think about your parents' needs or your roommate's needs, or your friend's needs, or your coworkers, or whoever it is you might be interacting with in this life to consider their needs first before your own. Value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And so we have this passage that really boils down to two big ideas, unity and humility. Now, quick word Um, on on each. First, on unity. Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. Um, And if you remember going back, the thesis of Philippians, which you can find in verse 27 of chapter 1, is Paul's driving home um, to live as citizens of the gospel of the king. Right? That's Philippians in a nutshell, in one sentence. And so Paul says to live as a citizen of the gospel of the king, striving together as one in the faith. You see, Paul envisions a church that is unified over one thing. All the other stuff is just noise. The one thing Paul says is that we are unified in the gospel. That is where we keep our main focus on. And if our main focus is on the gospel of Jesus, 
The rest of the stuff is going to figure itself out. And so he's saying to live as a citizen of the gospel of the king as one in the faith. Fill up my joy to overflowing by being like-minded in unity and humility and stay focused on the one thing. Unity is actually a means to an end, right? The unity leads to what? The focus and advancement of the gospel of Jesus. So the aim of the church is to advance the gospel. And Paul's well aware that if you're not unified, that's not going to happen. And he's well aware that if the church comes together around preferences, you'll see this all throughout his, his other epistles, whether it's from a preacher, a charismatic leader, whether it's a worship style or a certain type of music, or it's the new church in town that has the most exciting service, or, or whatever it is that you rally around that's really rooted in more in your preferences, right, rather than the gospel of Jesus, what happens is when, let's say, for example, a charismatic leader fails, or leaves, or passes away, when churches are built on that, they come crumbling down. And so our preferences cannot be the driver by what brings us together, but rather unified on the main thing, the gospel of Jesus. He says, I'm here for the gospel of Jesus. That's the mission. That's the drive. That's the glue. That's the reason we are doing this thing, why we're gathering every day in the temple and doing these things together. That's the horizon. Now, this is tricky in our culture, and I, I get it, because we are right now in this super polarizing space. Politically, our, our country's divided. Um, it's, it's, it's even our churches, are, are, there's a lot of fighting going on probably witnessed that a lot during whether it was the election or whether it was during the pandemic where we disagreed on so many different issues. There was so much fighting. If, if you go on Facebook right now, there are so many, at least I'm witnessing, here's my age demographic, but debates on whether it's Roe versus Wade or gas prices, whatever, right? People are at each other's throats. And the reality is uh, there's only so much we can do in the public sphere, like on Facebook or whatever. Um, you know, it's funny, in my neighborhood, we have, I have these neighbors, one of them has a blue sign that says vote no, the other one has a red sign that says vote yes, this is in light of the, the uh, vote coming up for um, value them both, right? And I thought, I see these all throughout my neighborhood, what if in the middle of the night, I put on a hood, went out there and switched their signs? Think about it though, what would happen? They would look out at first, they'd be angry, like, oh, that's not my sign. But then they would look at their neighbor and see that their sign was switched. And they go, oh, but now they have the right sign. And they'd realize, we need to come together and find out who this hoodlum is that's switching our signs. Right? It would bring sort of a, a kind of unity. Right? These are just, just some ideas of, of um, kingdom mischief that maybe we should do as an activity. Um, but here's the thing. Um, I digress. That's, I don't know where I was going with that. Unity matters. Okay, second word, humility, okay? Humility. In the ancient world, humility was not actually a virtue. In fact, if you think about the word humility, it stems from the word humiliation. And every time the word is often used, it's actually associated with slavery. And so when Paul, it's like Paul uses language, like I'm a slave to Christ, right? For him to use that, it's very strange. It's a, it's a weird way to phrase it, but he's associating this, this idea of humility versus nobility, okay? That's slave versus those who are the high socioeconomic ladder. 
Slaves were the humble ones. And so he's saying, look, I'm a slave. There's humility here. I have a low, not, not a low view of myself in the sense that I don't think I'm, I'm a good person or anything like that, but, but that I'm going to consider others as, as more important. There's this other word um, that's sort of a, a counter to humility, and that's the word pride. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And so the, the metaphor that I thought of tonight, and it's not a perfect um, object, but here I have what's supposed to represent a mirror. Okay, it's really wood with chicken wire. But imagine it's a mirror, okay, that you can kind of see through. And on the other end of the spectrum, I've got a mirror, okay? So you can see that, okay? You know it's a mirror, so it works. We have a mirror and we have a window. Pride is like a mirror. Pride is when you look into it and you are self-focused. The only person, the first person you see is yourself. And when you look out into the world, the way you interpret everything, the way you make decisions, the way uh, basically everything you do, you do it first by saying, how can I benefit from this situation? How can I put myself and my needs first and foremost? And all you end up seeing is yourself. Now, there are two forms of pride, right? There's the one that looks in the mirror and, you know, maybe you're flexing and be like, oh, I look good and my hair is great today and... You know, you, you really like the way you look, and you sort of get this boosted ego about yourself. But I think there's actually a more insidious type of pride. And it's funny to call it pride, but oftentimes it's rooted in more of an insecurity, where you look in the mirror and you say, man, I, this shirt's kind of snug. I can really lose some weight. I, I am, I'm really pale. I need some tan. Um, I really just hate the way I look. Okay, and I'm using that as an example with a mirror, but there's a sort of I think underneath insecurity, especially when we look at ourselves, I think there's actually at the root of it some pride. We need to understand that within all the ways in which we see and view the world, that pride can so easily creep its way in. And it's always about being focused on yourself and how you see everything. Now, humility on the other side is like a window, okay? When you look through a window, you're able to see out first. You see the person on the other side of the window, even if that person doesn't agree with you, even if that person doesn't look like you, even if that person um, is inconsequential to your benefit, right? You see that person and you say, that person has higher value than me, and I'm going to meet that person's needs before I can meet my own and so when you think about your life, think about the people whom God brings into your sphere of influence, whether it is your immediate family or your friends or your coworkers or the people who you walk next to at the gym or um, your classmates or people at your church or even people who don't know Jesus in your spheres of influence. When you see those people, do you see them first through the lens of how can they benefit me or do you see them through a window and say, man, how can I bring Christ to that person. Humility is not self-deprecating, it's self-effacing. Essentially what that means is that humility is not about bringing ourselves down, but it's about saying, how can I bring that person up? And Paul says, listen, it all comes down to unity and humility. So what's the connection? Why is why unity and humility connected? You know, at Eastminster, we have um, 
something called a session, which means that we have elders. There's a lot of them. There's 24, which is a pretty big session. And whenever you get 24 people in a room um, and you have to make hard decisions, there inevitably is going to be people you disagree with, right? There are going to be people with different opinions and thoughts and solutions. And whenever you're in that sort of position or whether you're in a boardroom with other people who you're having to make hard decisions, there's going to be contention. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be people you don't like, right? People you get into arguments with. And for many people, a lot of this comes down to, I think, selfish ambition and power and underneath it all, pride. And often what we do and what I I tend to do myself is when we have contention or strife with someone, we often say, man, what's wrong with that? I'm going to pray for that guy. But the truth is, often I think what we need to do is look inwardly and say, wait a second, in what ways has pride crept into my position and posture towards this person? And really ask those hard questions. And so here's my encouragement for you in closing. As you go through your week, as moments of of conflict arise, or arguments, whether it's with a spouse, coworker, friend, whatever it might be, maybe before we point the finger at the person across from us, we first do the inward work of saying, where has pride slipped into my own heart in this conversation? And oftentimes when we can find that and discover that and repent of that, you'd be amazed at how that changes the posture of the person in front of us. We begin by checking our own heart first. This is why Paul puts unity and humility together, because you can't have unity without humility. You'll find out more uh, in the coming, rest of the coming chapter. Um, but look, you know, this is the one other thing to point out, is that the church in Philippi really didn't have this issue, but Paul knows, Galatia did, the church in Corinth did, they were fighting all the time. I don't want you to end up like them, right? So it's not a rebuke, but it's a warning. And I think that warning is not just for the church in Philippi, but it's for us as well. That we, as Eastminster, right, there is a real potential that we could slip into a type of disunity because of a lack of humility. And this is what Paul is calling the church to, to be truly humble, to look through a window, to see the other person who thinks differently, who acts differently, who maybe gets under your skin and say, how can I put them first? As we close the service, we're going to have a time to take communion together and go to the table. Pastor Ken Ferguson is here. He's going to lead us in that in just a little bit. Um, But before we do that, we're going to spend just a brief time in confession. And and part of that is for us to take a moment to examine our own hearts and to confess the ways in which we've fallen short, and then to receive the forgiveness. God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so we're going to do that together. And I actually have a a prayer of confession that um, we're going to read together. So if you would mind, Joseph, putting that on the screen. Let's read this together. Gracious and loving God, open our hearts so that we are able to admit to you fullness of our lives, that which is beautiful and good and that which is hurtful and hateful. We confess that we do not follow Jesus in all that we do. We love with condition. We judge and condemn. We cast the first stone and we keep logs in our own eyes. We do not turn to you as the source of our healing. Forgive us, we pray. Forgive our sin 
and empower us to be imitators of Christ in love and service. Amen.